the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to this KGNW broadcast special, Heart of the City. Pastors, ministry leaders, and churches have received a call to serve their communities with the love and compassion of Christ. The call is from God's heart to the heart of the city. Well, this is Heart of the City, and my name is Chuck Olmstead. I'm the Director of Local Ministry Development here at KGNW, and we take this time each week to share with various pastors and ministry leaders in the Seattle area. And uh, today I have a, a new friend that just uh, had an opportunity to meet uh, before we came uh, for our recording time, and his name is Tong Pham. He's the missional team leader uh, for CREW uh, at the University of Washington. And uh, Tong, I want to welcome you today. Hey, thank you for having me on. Yeah, well, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Uh, Heart of the City, uh, we love to share about the faithfulness of God and what He's done in individuals' lives and then how that's worked out in someone's mm-hmm. life uh, in ministry efforts. And, uh, you know, often find uh, some really interesting stories of people and their walk with the Lord over the course of time and then how that then developed into a life of ministry. So, uh, are you uh, originally from this area? What? Tell me a little bit about your background. Tom. Yeah, I'm actually not. Uh, I'm originally from Vietnam. I'm. A, I'm. A, I, our family escaped from Vietnam in March of 1981. Left on a boat from Hue, Vietnam. Uh, went to Hong Kong. Spent 15 days out at sea. It's part of my story. Le- uh, spent 11 months at a refugee camp there, and then in February of '82, my uncle had sponsored us over. So we actually grew up in Paulsbo, Washington. Came over when, just a little after four years old. Wow. So so four years old. So how long were you in the refugee camp? 11 months. 11 months. So, so in my threes. You were three years old. Yeah. So do you remember I that do transition? I do not. I do not remember. Really. No. Right. I'm sure you get asked that often. I do. <laughs> yeah, I'm often asked that question. Like, do you have any vivid memories of the boat? I was out in sea for 15 days. No, I don't have any memories of it. I just know that I was really sick. The only memories of childhood I had was being strapped in a hospital bed in Hong Kong. But that's the only memory I have. Interesting. So you had family with you? It was your mother and siblings? My, mo- my mom, my dad, and then my younger brother. So I was three. My brother's 20 months younger so you can imagine, um, we were on a little boat, I'd say about 18, 19 foot long, no cover up top, central engine, and 15 of us on the boat. Wow. Wow. So what was happening at that time in Vietnam for your parents to, to, to want to do that? Yeah, I think the Americans had pulled out in 75. My dad was a traveling practitioner, so he, he went from household to household giving medical shots, and he just, he, he is, he just does not enjoy being kind of tied down by the government. And so the reality is in the middle of the night, uh, he set out to escape from Vietnam. So there's a mass exodus in the 70s, late 70s and early 80s. And so we were part of 81. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you had family here in Paulsbo already. Yes. 
and so they help sponsor you to yes. come over. What what does spon- what what happens when someone sponsors you? Do they have to make a financial commitment? What do they do? Yeah, back then it was a little bit easier, but there's a financial commitment where you have to have a little bit of money in the bank, and I think you have to be an American citizen. So my uh, my uncle had left earlier in the '70s, and so that's how he came over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, well, obviously you were young. You didn't know English. Nope. <laughs> and your family probably didn't know any English. Nope. I have very vivid memories of being in kindergarten and not knowing anything. Wow. So what uh, what was that transition like for you then? I mean, uh, were were people accepting of you? Was there uh, kind of any animosity because you were an immigrant or you were from Vietnam? Or did you sense any of that as a young child? Or was, was the integration into your life in Paulsville pretty good? I think it was pretty good. We lived in the World War II housing, which has been destroyed now, but it's all beautiful housing now. Uh, but yeah, we lived in the projects there. My dad instantly got a job. My, my you know, I think he had a green card at the time. My mom was uh, a housekeeper working for some folks in the area, mm-hmm. cleaning their house. So I didn't know any more. I didn't know any better. And I uh, went to school. Uh, obviously, I was starting to pick up a little bit of the English language, but I do remember vivid moments being l- missing the bus and just crying and crying and crying and hoping that someone would come pick me up. Yeah, because you so, didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know how to communicate. Uh-huh. They had an emergency contact number. They called it. And, of course, I had to speak to them because they didn't know how to speak to someone that doesn't know any English. Uh-huh. And so, and then I'm trying to translate, saying I'm stuck at school. And, of course, we didn't have a vehicle, so they had to try to contact other uncles or relatives to come pick me up. So I remember an uncle came and picked me up. I mean, those are some vivid memories 30-some years ago. Yeah. So what was the the spiritual life like of your family? Were Mm -hmm. you—was anybody—were there believers, or was there any kind of spiritual— uh, thought or practice in in your life or in your, the life of your family? No, actually, there's uh, just a Buddhist practice. You know, you lay out fruit at the full moons and you worship the dead. Like every year, we'd annually worship—well, not worship, but practice uh, celebrating with a feast for my grandfather who had passed away. So those are the only things I remember growing up. But really, no religion. No religion. Just kind of. Just good morals, you know, mm-hmm. that my parents had taught us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Respect your elders. That was the major one. I remember getting disciplined if I didn't respect my elders. Yeah. <laughs> so in Paulsbo, what was life like for you then going th- through grade school on into junior high, high school? Was, you know, life pretty normal? Parents working, going mm-hmm. to school, sports, anything like that? You know, school is obviously a high emphasis within the Asian culture. I remember in elementary school, I had my parents would uh, come to all those teacher-parent conferences. They were great. But I started kind of catching on that I realized I was starting to get ashamed of my own culture. Uh. This was kind of the first experience of that. And so I remember my parents kept going. But from junior high on, my parents really never went to anything except for in ninth grade when I was student of the year. They came to watch me receive an award. But outside of that, my parents really never got involved after that. They never took me to sports because all they cared about was education. Mm-hmm. And so there, my dad's dream when he left Vietnam was strictly one thing, to get all of us kids through college. And that's what he did. He paid for my college, my brother's college, and then my sister was born here in America, but uh, they paid for her schooling also. Interesting. So, And you find that pretty strong in the Asian community, don't you, that, that drive for education? I mean, that's pretty strong. Yes, it is. It's, it's a distinct uh, trait that, that has been passed on in the mm-hmm. Asian culture for sure. I think education is kind of king. 
mm-hmm. or God. Yeah, yeah. So uh, high school sports. So you were were you a, a, a thriving athlete? Probably not football. Yeah, I, no, I, <laughs> you're not no, that large. No, <laughs> I, I, I played I played tennis. Uh-huh. I played tennis and I played some basketball. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So then your transition out of high school ended up going to Washington State University. Okay, so you're a cougar. Yeah, yeah. And so, what was your major then at that time? Yeah, I went in, uh, of course, a typical Asian, maybe potentially uh, pre-med. Uh-huh. Uh, so I was thinking either biology or chemistry uh, to do something along the lines where I can get into medical school. But kind of quickly into it, I realized, man, I am not cut out for this. So I went into business, and uh, I came to Christ my freshman year in college. Tell me about that. How did that happen? I was living on a dorm floor with a couple other Christian guys. And, uh, you know, I'd been dating throughout college my freshman year, but I realized there's something more. And uh, my buddy on the floor, Adam J, invited me to this thing called Crew. And I kept thinking, what is this? But I thought, man, if I'm ever going to get married, I'm going to try to find some religious girl. <laughs> I, I knew some sense that I, I knew that, man, I need to find something like that. And it was kind of weird. I dated all these girls, but I knew in the back of my mind that I needed to find a religious, devout something girl. So I went to Crew. And I thought, man, I'm going to find some religious girl to marry. Okay, so the motivation was not necessarily this deep spiritual yearning. It is not. (laughs) Well, the Lord uses our motivations in many ways, doesn't he? He does. (laughs) So I kept going, getting really involved. And then the next thing I know, I go to a fall retreat. They said they're going to pay for it. Hey, why not? It's a weekend thing. Get away. And I realized for the very first time that I was very different. Because every week I'd go to their weekly meeting and there'd be a great conversation or topic. But at the end of it, it came back to Christ and Christ dying on the cross to have a relationship with God the Father. And I kept thinking, this is really strange. Mm. And I thought, man, this is Christianity is really boring. It's just weird. It comes back to one person. The central theme is Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins and acknowledging that he's the only hope for salvation. I kept thinking, why is that so weird to me? And so I thought, okay, well, I'll just keep coming to crew because I'm here for the girls. I'm not here for God. And then I went to that retreat and realized, okay, something's happening. So then later that fall, December 7th, Pearl Harbor Day, 1996, the fall of my freshman year, I came to Christ at 5.05 p.m. in the basement of a duplex home on Larry Street in Pullman, Washington, of all places. Wow. Because a guy shared the Knowing God Personally booklet with me. What was that experience like for you? I mean, there, how... Because I've heard other stories, obviously, the same thing, that there was this question about why is Jesus so important? So w- what, was, what was that answer for you? Why, why is Jesus so important? What, what, what then motivated you to say, I, I need to now turn my life over to this Jesus? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for me it was, I'm not brilliant or anything, but I think I kept looking around and I, you know, you look at media and you realize, man, how come everyone is not very happy? You look at, you know, you look at um, famous people and they're either they're getting a divorce or, you know, they're committing suicide. I kept thinking, is, I thought money was king because that's exactly what my parents had told me my whole entire life is you got to make money. Mm-hmm. And I realized, well, if money was king, how come they're committing suicide or getting divorces or life is miserable for them? And so I looked into religion and then I realized, man, I'm at the end of my rope. Hmm. If if this is not it, then I have one shot at this. So I'm going to take a chance. So that's kind of how I, from the couple months prior to that moment, that day, I said, well, I got nothing to lose. I'm going to check this thing out. I've been hearing the gospel every week now for a couple months. 
So I said, okay, I'm going to meet with this guy that was on staff, Stacy Gordon. I met with him, and then for four hours, he walked me through, and I said, that's what I want. I want, to, I want you to walk me through this booklet. So mm-hmm. this is the third or fourth time I'd walk through the same booklet. Interesting. You know, that God has this great plan for your life. He has actually has purpose. Mm-hmm. But we walk away from that. But he has a solution that Christ came and actually died for your sin. And I said, okay, I have very little faith, but I'm willing to put at least a little bit into this. But, of course, even the demons know that he's real. So I just said, hey, by faith, I'm going to pray and ask that he would come in, live inside of me, and change me. If he's real, he'll do that. Mm-hmm. So what happened December 7th, and, yeah. and you say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit my life to the Lord. I'm going to accept Christ as my Savior. What happened then? Yeah, you know, when you do that, you don't really know what's going to happen. But I remember thinking, you know what? If God is great, then he's got a plan. So I'll just trust that. So at 5.05, I remember saying amen at that moment, looking at the clock, 5.05 p.m., December 7th. And then I... Then I said, okay, this is really weird. But, you know, people have different experiences, but my experience was for the next week was the strangest experience. I remember sitting there thinking, okay, my life has radically changed somehow. And the first major change was this. I I used every four-letter word every three or four words. That was my experience. If you ask any of my friends back then, that was my— That was your language. That was my language. And then all of a sudden, that was the first thing that disappeared out of my vocabulary. And I remember it wasn't, was it, it wasn't purposeful. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like you were thinking, I've got to stop using these words. It was not. It was not. It was an instantaneous thing. And I think what it was, because I doubted so much. So I think God, what he did was in his sovereignty, looked at that and said, you know what? I need to show him that something's got to change. And so I think he just took the most obvious thing wow. that was obvious to me. Well, out of the heart, you know, man speaks. And there was a change of heart. There was. And it came out uh, through your language. Was a different, different. <laughs> so I'm sure that was a shock to to your buddies who knew you. It was, and it was obviously noticeable to them. It was, and and I can vividly remember. It was like two years later on the golf course that another accidental word finally came out. Two years later, which was weird at this point for uh-huh, me. Uh-huh. But yeah, that was God for sure. Yeah. So a change of heart. And uh, was there then a change of focus as far as what you wanted to do vocationally? Or how did what did your parents think? Because they probably, you know, didn't necessarily know of your of your walk with the Lord or they had no idea. So so what happened with with your family? Very vivid memories came home for uh, came home for winter break just a couple weeks later. My Mm -hmm. aunt from California had rolled up. I remember it snowed that winter. And I said a line when we were all sitting together around for dinner. I said, what if someday I became a pastor or some religious guy? And my mom and dad looked at me and said, "Hmm, that's kind of weird. And they really didn't say much more at that point. But And I really didn't know what else to say besides the fact that I, hey, I'm starting to go to church. Uh That was it. Yeah, yeah. That was my only, my parents' only experience at that moment. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Could they, of course, I'm sure your language wasn't quite as rough around your mom no. and dad as it might have been around your buddies, so they didn't necessarily see a change in that. But mm. uh, could they tell that there was something different about you, or did they just re- did they even acknowledge it? No, they did, because I, would, I used to always talk about business ideas or ventures to think about money or making money, because that was kind of my DNA and my, the way I was bred, really. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden, I went on missions trips in the middle of my summer. 
Uh, so I took my summers right after my freshman year. I actually went on a missions trip with my director to Colorado State University to be trained and developed in the area of evangelism and discipleship. And I said, I'll go. And then I had to raise funding. And so that was when my parents said, something's really strange. He's asking people for money uh-huh. and he's going on a missions trip to talk to people about Jesus. <laughs> so my parents thought, okay, something is actually real now. Yeah, yeah. So during that time, did you change your major? Did you continue on in business? What was what was your I did. education I, like? I did. I changed my major to education, actually, because I realized what I wanted to do was teach. If 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 God didn't ask me to go into the ministry, I think I'm called to Him, but he, but occupationally, I, I, I had sense that I was going to be in occupational ministry. So I said, you know what? I'm going to go into teaching. I'm going to get a teaching degree because I'm going to stand in front of people. I'm going to spend a lot of time with people. I'm going to disciple people. I'm going to share my faith, the simplicity of the gospel to people. So I'm, I might as well get an education degree. So that's actually what I did. I went and changed my major to education, which was not popular with my parents because my parents said, you do not make any money with that. <laughs> so the yeah. reality is it was not popular. Uh-huh. So that's what I did. Uh-huh. Got an education degree from Washington State. Yeah. So, so uh, you're talking about going to crew to meet girls. So did that? Was there a byproduct out of that? Was there a, a girl that happened to pop up at that time? No, there were a lot of relationships <laughs> within crew that I probably have uh, hurt and yeah. Uh, no, but it wasn't till uh, when I was 28 years old. Ten years later is when I met my wife. Interesting. And so, so out, out of college then. Uh, what what happened? What happened next? Yeah, I uh, I had finished my schooling really in four years, and then I was uh, talking in Seattle, actually raising funding for Wazoo, the campus there, the crew movement. And the gentleman came up and said, hey, I am willing to do whatever you want me to do, support you. And so I ended up going back to school for the next year and a half, living in an all-freshman dorm as a fifth and sixth year senior, finished with my degree so that I can do ministry as a student because I thought, you know what? I'm going to milk my studentship dry. I can only influence a student uh, most effectively as another insider, a student. Mm-hmm. So I thought, hey, I'm coming on staff anyways. Why not I just postpone the staff with crew and do a student life? And so that's what I did. So a gentleman helped me with some of my tuition, and my parents helped me with um, some of the room and board, and I stayed in school for another year and a half and graduated in 2002. Interesting. So your family kind of started, it sounds like, started coming along a little bit with your with your goals and vision for what you're going to do in your life. I mean, did, did, did they seem to accept the fact that you were starting to live this lifestyle and beginning to focus on ministry? Yeah, I, th- I think it was neutral at best. I remember vividly my mother saying to me, you know, how can you do what you do and stay married, you think, in America, since... You know, that was her perception of America was, well, there's so much divorce going on. How do you think that's going to happen with you making very little money? Right. And then second, how are you going to do anything in life making very little money? And she actually called me a beggar because we have to raise all of our funding. So so that's what she said to me. She said, well, you're only one step above what I would consider maybe a thief is a wow. beggar. And so I remember those vivid words when I actually told her that I'm going to come on staff with crew uh-huh. uh, full-time to work with college students and so yeah yeah tough words from a from a mom what I did you say to her uh you know I, I i told her i said i know that you're not going to understand this but this is what i believe god is calling me to do mm-hmm. he's asking me to specifically do this 
And this is what I've seen. So I started explaining her stories and, and, and accounts of different people's lives changing and then obviously my own life changing. Yeah. And then I began to kind of simply lay out little nuggets of what I see the Lord doing in my life and then through my life. So, Well, tell me, we've used the word crew, uh, and it's uh, C-R-U, not C-R-E-W. So what does what is crew and what does crew stand for? Yeah, um, it's crew is formerly uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, started in 1951 by Dr. Bill Bright, but it's uh, it's an interdenominational parachurch Christian organization that uh, started going after college students in, at UCLA, mm-hmm. and his vision was reach college students today, reach the world tomorrow with the gospel, mm-hmm. and so that's and then they changed it to crew doing kind of a survey. If you were to walk on campus or walk anywhere and say, "Hey, could, could I talk to you or ask you questions about God?" I'm involved with Campus Crusade for Christ. The effectiveness level in a postmodern culture, actually in America, was actually not that high. Right, and so really they just used a shortened word, crew, um, to really kind of use that as a name. Hey, mm-hmm. I'm involved with crew. I'd love to ask you a few questions. Uh, about your spiritual background, would that be okay? And then that was received statistically, percentagely, much better. Yeah. And so really over kind of a, it wasn't to take the name of Christ out. It wasn't to uh, water it down in any way. It was really just uh, thinking through effective effectiveness. Yeah, so. of course, of course, of of um, that communication process. So tell me what you're doing now. You're the uh, missional team leader. So uh, big words for a, a interesting title. So so what do you do, and what are your challenges there working with crew at the University of Washington? Yeah, I, I would say really what I do is a God thing because really I'm talking to students and faculty every day hoping that their whole purpose and existence of life would change. Hmm. It would no longer be about self or anything outside of who Christ is and what God is doing in the world. And people ask me, well, why do you share your faith? And I, I don't share my faith because salvation is for them. I mean, I think that's one element, but it's because I've experienced this living King, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, in a way that has radically changed my life, that I think that has the greatest sense of purpose, deep meaning, that I believe that's why I share my faith. Mm-hmm. And then that's why I disciple students and people who want to learn and grow in their faith so that they can share their faith and disciple others. What are the chief objections that you get now as you're talking with students uh, about uh, Christianity, about about um, uh, Jesus? What 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 are the objections that you're hearing? Is does it have to be have to do with hey, your truth is your truth, I have my truth, kind of a thing? You know, there's no absolute truth. Or what are the objections that people are giving? Yeah, I think the major objections are really couched behind that or kind of hidden behind that. I'd say, yeah, well, how do you know Jesus is real? It feels like there's many other, um, you know, things that are—they all lead to the same road. But I would say really statistically it's high that really they're hiding behind it because it's a morality issue. They don't want the God of the universe to invade their morality or their choice or their decision. So really, ultimately, they are God of themselves. They see themselves as God. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's many days that I might, even as a Christian today, live really like I'm God, mm-hmm. if, I'm, if I'm candidly honest. Yeah, I, I, I want to live my own life. Yeah. I don't want anybody telling me what I can do. And and obviously, you know, I think about often, I think about the, the um, bumper sticker. Sometimes I still see it around, but it's question authority, you know, and the mm-hmm. fact that that people live with that lifestyle to question all authority, and they don't believe that they should have any authority in their life other mm. than themselves. 
And you're right, yeah. that, that soon becomes they're their own God. Yeah. So um, what are the unique challenges that students are facing today as they're finishing college and then moving on into the work life? And we've got about a minute and a half left. Okay. I'd say the biggest unique challenge, I would say, is consumerism is one. They're, they're, They're made to think about how can I buy, how can I consume. Second, they're busy. They're busy and they're preoccupied with things that might not really matter, I'll be candidly honest. And then I would say the other is like, just different idols and addictions that they have. And I think the enemy himself, Satan, is so great at kind of keeping us as Christians and and people who are moving towards the cross kind of distracted in those three major arenas. And I would say that's pretty common with the students that I work with. They're busy, they're consumeristic, or they're thinking about themselves. And then I think they're struggling with some sense of addiction or some sort of like thing that they're kind of gravitating to outside of God as an idol. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's not only true with students. I think that's true with so many of us, uh, even us 60-year-olds, that are living life where I'm just perusing a book that I have, Richard Foster, The Celebration of Discipline, mm-hmm. where he talks about the, you know, the, the solitude needed in the Christian life and, and the disciplines needed of, uh, of experiencing the Lord. Well, time has gotten away from me, and we're about ready to wrap up. Uh, I've been with uh, Tong Pham. He's the director of uh, missional team leader with Crew University of Washington. If you'd like to connect with Tong, you can go to uh, Tong. It's T H A N G dot Pham, P H A M at Crew dot org. Tong, thanks for joining me today. You've been listening to this KGNW special, Heart of the City. For more information about how your pastor or ministry can be featured on KGNW, call Chuck Olmsted at 206-269-6216 or go to KGNW.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.